we will be go back, going back to number six. So you know, I hope that if you were here last week, you did bring it. And we'll be picking up with number six and Lord willing, continuing with number seven tonight. All right. Well, it looks like you are ready. And so if you are ready, I am ready. Let's pray. Great God, our Lord, we do bless you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Indeed, blessed Trinity. We are delighted to worship you, O God, our Father. For by your grace, you're able to call you Abba, Father. And we do worship you, O God the Son, for by your marvelous condescension and incarnation, we can call you Elder Brother, one who has taken our very nature into union with himself. And we magnify you, O blessed Spirit of God, you who are the spirit of the breath of life in us, the new life, the regenerate life of the grace of heaven. In your triune essence and triune personhood, we thank you that you have disclosed yourself to us in a way that we can grasp, however feebly, how great you are, how magnificent you are in yourself, in your relationship with one another, and in your revelation of yourself to sinners such as we are. As we continue to understand the lengths, depth, and the heights, and the breadth of your being and your working. You're working in your church, we pray, that you will bless us with increased understanding and deeper thanksgiving and love for you. And we ask this praying in the name of of him who is at the midpoint of Trinity, one who is at the center of the triune Godhead, your dear Son, and our precious Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. Now I invite you to come back with me to the second page of handout number six. Where at the bottom of that page after the confessional excerpts, we have a note on the rhetorical question in verse 5, a rhetorical question which uh, receives an understood 
Uh, no, he did not ever address any of the angels like this. Where we ask, did God ever address any of the angels as an essential son? That is, in accordance with verse 3, one who was stamped with the imprint of his nature, his very being. When we say essential son, that is a son of essence, a son of like essence, co-essential. And our answer is no, he did not ever address an angel in that way. Well, did he ever address an angel as begotten of the Father? And again, the answer is no, he did not. No angel is described as begotten of the Father. And third, to perfect and make extremely precise what we've said in number two, did God ever address an angel as eternally begotten of the Father or as an eternally begotten Son? And the echo, once again, is in the negative, no, he did not. From this passage, then, and its context, we note that there is no attribution of sonship to an angelic being in terms of essential godness or deity. There is no attribution of begottenness to an angelic being as one begotten of God the Father, nor is there any suggestion that an angelic being was eternally begotten or the only begotten eternal Son of the Father. Those negatives, then, are an underscoring of the positive. The Son is the very stamp and imprint of God's nature. He is begotten of the Father. He is eternally begotten of the Father. He is the only eternally begotten Son of the Father. And those unique qualities to the Son underscore his essential deity as well as his distinct personality. Now, some of you have commented to me privately, and it's perfectly all right what you have suggested, that our discussion of this section has on occasion been very deep, pretty high and challenging, and I admit that uh, this is a challenging part of God's word, and it has been plumbed by those in the history of the church in order to understand the depths of its riches. But it may be simply expressed in terms of the unity of the divine essence and the distinction of the divine persons. For when we are told that the Son in verse 3 is the stamp of God's nature, the imprint of his substance, we are talking about the Son 
participating in the unity of the divine essence. We're not going to leave out the Holy Spirit, though he is not the specific focus of this section of this epistle. Nonetheless, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one God, one essential, substantial deity. They are not three gods. They are one. And so we talk about the unity of essence and the Son of the Father shares the essential unity of the Father. He has a unity of essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, at the same time, there is a personal distinction. The Father and the Son address one another, intercommunicate with one another, relate to one another. This is the relational category of the persons of the Godhead. These are distinct personal relations. The Father alone is Father. He is not the Son. He is not the Holy Spirit. The Son alone is Son. He is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone is Holy Spirit. He is not the Father or the Son. These are distinct relational or personal qualities. Now, we can say that they are incommunicable. Because, as we said, the Father is not the Son, nor is he the Holy Spirit. So he does not communicate his fatherhood to the Son or to the Holy Spirit. The Son's incommunicable property is to be Son. He is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. That is his incommunicable. He does not communicate that personal quality. And it is the same with the Holy Spirit. It is his uh, incommunicable property to be the Holy Spirit. He does not communicate that to the Father or to the Son. So we're talking about these personal, incommunicable distinctions by which the persons define themselves personally. Okay? Distinction with respect to person, personhood. Unity of essence, distinction of person. Having said that, then we want to balance those two statements by noting that the distinction of personality is not a division of the persons, not a separation of the persons. If they are one substantial or essential being, if they are one godness of God, okay, then if we distinguish them in such a way as to separate them, from their unity, from their essential unity, then we would have three gods. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a doctrine of three gods. It is a doctrine of three persons in one God. So very simply, the Son of God is God, as God the Father is God. As God, the Holy Spirit, is God. But these three persons are one God, distinct in personality, but not separate in essentiality, in substantiality, in essence, in Godness. Now, this underscores the deity of the Son of God, the deity of Christ. If he is essential God, then he is God of gods. That notion of the deity of Christ must be extremely precious to us 
as Christian believers. It is God, God the Son, who is our Savior. We could not be saved by an angel. No angel could redeem us. We could not be saved by any creature, no matter how good such a creature would be. We could never be saved by another created being. Only a person who is God is able to save us. Only a person who is God can save us. And God the Son came to save us. It is the reason that the writer of the epistle underscores this identity of who Jesus is. And it is so important to Christianity, Christianity that comes out of the understanding of what the Bible teaches about who Jesus of Nazareth is. It is so important to us because, as you see, our salvation hangs upon it. We may get very excited about the Protestant Reformation and the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and we should. And we will celebrate that here next Friday night, a week from tomorrow, by looking at the unknown Reformation in Eastern Europe at 7.30. You're all invited and welcome to come and to bring any of your friends or members of your church who might be interested. So we celebrate the Reformation every year in this seminary and open that celebration to the community. And we are delighted to reemphasize once again the way of salvation that the Apostle Paul declares justification through faith alone because it's by Christ alone, because it's through grace alone. And yet, if it is not by the Jesus who is God, then it is of no weight. It is useless. You see, more important than the doctrine of justification by faith alone is who is whose faith we are looking by whose faith we are looking to for that justification. If he is a saint, if he is the Virgin Mary, if that Savior is some other creature, we are of all men most hopeless, and that was Luther's agony. But if he is God, then he can save to the uttermost all who place their trust in him. This is the very simple reduction of this discussion of the deity of the Son and his participation in the essential Godhead. It is reduced to this simplicity because without a Jesus of Nazareth who is very God, There is no salvation or redemption, no release from damnation or the weight of our sins, none whatsoever for you or for me or for any other sinner in this world. The person who saves is the saving person. Do you see it? The person, he must be God to save. And so the Savior is the second person of the Godhead. 
We hold those two in the intimacy of our faith and hope, our confidence, our love, our devotion is deepened and enriched by this very simple simple truth. And yet we realize in its simplicity how profoundly deep it is. And as we, as we penetrate its depths, so we are plumbing the depths of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and the relationship between the Godhead and our redemption. Who is our Redeemer? He is Jesus, who is God, who is ontological deity. There's the fancy word, but you see, we've said he's God in a fancy way. And as the church struggles to articulate that and to... to <clears throat> place limits around it so heresy will not break down those uh, those uh, definitions and characteristics. So we will not become Jehovah's Witnesses and think that the Son of God is a creature and then that's fine and dandy. No, it's not fine and dandy. A creature can't save. So, with the richness of this, which may leave you gasping at certain parts and groping, please come back to this very basic and fundamental and simple truth of the New Testament gospel. Jesus of Nazareth is, as John, as Thomas says in John 20, 28, your Lord and your God, and only he could save you from your sins. Only an eternal person could save you from an eternal punishment. Only an eternal person could deliver you from an eternal punishment. Now, we have suggested that there is a narrative paradigm here. We have outlined it very simply in terms of the narrative parabola. That is, the Son of God comes out of eternity, comes into time, and returns to eternity at his ascension and glorification. This narrative drama is a drama into which the writer is inviting you. The writer of Hebrews is using this pilgrimage or sojourn motif. Here, the sojourn of the Son of God, particularly in verses 2, 3, and 4 of this first chapter. He's using that sojourn motif as the background for the theme of this epistle, this theme of a letter to the Hebrews, the pilgrims of the New Testament age. And they are anticipated in their journey, in their pilgrimage, by the pioneer and perfecter of the soldier, as he is described by the author in chapter 12. Therefore, this discussion of the identity of Christ with respect to the triune Godhead and his personal distinction is part of the drama of the narrative. The writer of this epistle is inviting you in to the drama of who the Son of God is. Because, you see, the Son of God entered into your drama and invites you into his own.
He came into the drama of your sojourn along the line of your life in history. He came to be a human in the line of history. And he did that so that you could be a part of his drama in glory. He has undertaken his pilgrimage so that you can pilgrim with him. United to his sojourn, you too can come into the drama of the eschaton, the drama of the eschatological kingdom of God. This is not just Bible facts and doctrine. This is your life. This is your heart. This is the devotion of your mind. This is your eternal hope. Because an eternal person came to give it to you. I hope that may be of some assistance to some of you who have struggled with the difficulty of following uh, some of our discussion. I hope that, so to speak, kind of condensing it down in this way will enable you to grasp uh, more uh, with more delight the riches that are here. And when you recite the creeds, when you recite the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, when you read the creeds, these statements that we have printed in this handout number six, when you read them, then your understanding is deepened. When you read the scriptures and you read particularly the Gospel of John and he talks about the Father and, and himself and he talks about all that the Father has, he has, that this will enrich your understanding of the words on that text in those verses. And as you go through the entire New Testament and see reflections on who Christ is, who is what his identity is, that that will be deepened by what, uh, what you have learned from Hebrews chapter 1. Are there any comments or questions you may have before we go on to verse 6? All right, now... What then is the point of the sixth verse? Let all the angels of God worship him. Why bring up that passage? He is greater, indeed. They are to worship They are to worship him, indeed. Art, you have something on the tip of your tongue or the end of your finger. And also it shows that he is God because only God can be worshipped. Very good. Very good. Verse 6 is there in order to underscore the fact that the Son is God. Back to verse 3, he's the very imprint, the stamp of his nature and being. 
that cannot be said of the angels because they worship him. They are creatures. He is not. So back to you, Art. If the angels, as creatures, are worshiping the sun, and he is a creature, hypothetically, okay, what are they doing? Let, let me let me say it again. <clears throat> if the angels as creatures are worshiping the Son, and the Son, let's say the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, the Son of God is a creature, and the Son of God is a creature, the angels are worshiping him, what are they doing? Uh, it, it's idolatry. Yes, they're breaking uh, first, the first commandment. They are guilty of idolatry. If Thomas in John 20, 28, when he says, my Lord and my God, if he is adoring Jesus as a mere man. Now, when I say mere, M-E-R-E, okay, what do I mean? This is the Mary Magdalene, Jesus Christ superstar mere. Bill, you smiled. Why did I, why did you smile? You know what's behind that? I'm not recommending Jesus Christ superstar, but it was so flagrant. Kristen, what's she doing? She falls in love with him. And she calls him what? He's a man. He's only a man. He's nothing but a man. That's her song in Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay? <clears throat> so, he's a mere man. He's only a man. Okay? Now, I'm not commending it to you, but you don't have to see it, watch it, or even listen to it. You can read the lyrics. You can understand why it was such a counterculture hit when it exploded in the 60s because it was in fact the gospel according to Albert Schweitzer in popular rock opera form the historical Jesus reduced to the level of you and me just another human being and a sinful human being at that all right so mere man means he's only a man so if Thomas, in saying, my Lord and my God, is adoring Jesus of Nazareth as a mere man, then he is guilty of idolatry, even as this verse indicates that if the angels who are creatures are worshiping a creature, then they are guilty of idolatry too. The fact that they are worshiping him, as Art uh, said so well, is a testimony to the fact that he is not a creature he is distinct from the creature. He is distinct and separate from the creature. He is no creature. He is very God of very God. All right, now to the, the, the definition of the term or the meaning of the term firstborn. <clears throat> there are two possibilities for the meaning of this Greek word. The first <clears throat> is <clears throat> that it refers to rank. It does not refer to time. It is not a temporal designation. It is a designation of precedence. Rank taking precedence over all other creatures. <clears throat> if that be the nuance that the writer is using here, then it is a synonym to the word he uses in verse 3. That is, that he has been made heir of all things. The heir takes precedence over all that he inherits. He has the highest rank 
in that relationship. Consequently, since the Son of God in verse 2 is defined as the creator of all things, then as the firstborn of all creation, he has the precedence or the highest rank over all those things that he has created. You notice that I say having created them, then he is outside creation himself. To create, he is not a creator, which is an indirect defense of his deity once again, which of course is not under uh, suspicion here by our author. Therefore, the term firstborn cannot refer to him having a creaturely or temporal status. Cannot. Absolutely impossible. Will not jive with what's going on in the rest of the context. All right, so we don't make the mistake of saying firstborn means he's the first created. Well, if we say firstborn, then can we use a synonym for born? And can we say first begotten? And if we say first begotten, then we are saying eternally begotten. So, first begotten can mean, or firstborn can mean, a title of rank with respect to his heritage, that is, all creation belongs to him. Or second, it can actually be a synonym for only begotten or eternally begotten. And in fact, some of the Greek fathers use it this way, as does John Chrysostom the so-called golden-throated Chrysostom. Yes, one of the great preachers of the ancient church. So great that he was denominated with the, with the moniker the golden throat. Driven into exile mm, by the politics of Constantinople. And died. Died in exile. Well, Chrysostom makes this point about this passage. Not first created, but first begotten. Understood to mean eternally begotten. So we do not we do not stumble on this word first begotten. It is understood in the light of the role or relationship of the Son to the Father. And therefore, if in verse 2 he is called the Creator, and here in verse 6 he is called the Firstborn, then we know that he is not a creature. Because as Creator, he could not create himself. And as Creator, he is not created by another. But to be begotten, yes, to be eternally begotten of the Father, that could be be the nuance of the term. All right, to verse 7, which is unique in this katana. And Marge, what's a katana? Very good. A string of quotations. These quotations from Scripture, most of them from the Psalms. This is the only verse in this katana which is unique. Now, what do I mean by its uniqueness? 
The clue is what is or who is being discussed. The angels. And as you look at every other verse in verses 5 to 14, it is the angels and the son or the son and not the angels. The son is in every other verse except verse 7. Only the angels are featured here in verse 7. It is unique in that regard. He makes his angels wind and his ministers flame of fire. He makes. They are creatures. They are created beings. They are made. Notice the sun is not in that verse. As if the writer completely removes him from the category of what is made. He is the maker, verse 2. He is not made, verse 7. Now, I won't push that too far, but the point is the fact that this is a unique verse in the context and the name of the Son does not appear in it. Is it because the author is trying to shield the Son from any suggestion of being a creature, being made? Possibly, possibly. Verse 8. What do you see is distinctive here? For me, it's that he's speaking of him as king on the throne. Okay. Anybody see anything else? Kay sees a kind of kingly or royal enthronement. Obviously, the mention of the throne there would support that. Does anybody see anything else that is distinctive? Mary? It looks like God is speaking about his son, to his son. And what does he call him? God. He calls him God, yes. <clears throat> Notice that in verse 8a, the son is the one that's under discussion, and he is addressed in the next line as, O God. Now, that is a vocative Okay, that is a vocative. Now, the vocative case is translated in English usually with O, somebody, and in this case, O, God. So that's the vocative form as we bring it out in English translation. But the vocative is the case of direct address. Direct address. Oh, Pete. See, vocative, direct address to Pete. Okay? So when we call people with that, you know, we even say it, Mike, where are you going? Okay? It's a vocative. Okay? Now, uh, the grammar here is on the side of this, though I admit that there is a possible uh, a translational uh, issue here. But I think that the vocative reading is the accurate reading, and so I'm going to treat it that way. But I want to underscore, you see, if the father is directly addressing the son, this evocative, and he says, O God, thy throne is forever. You have here then an explicit declaration of the deity of the Son of God. The son is equated with the God who is addressed. And therefore, 
all Unitarians who reduce this first chapter of Hebrews to a creaturehood of the Son of God are not reading the text correctly, including Jehovah's Witnesses. So how do they wiggle around it? They say, they translate the verse, the throne of God is forever. So they de-emphasize the vocative address and they place the throne of God as the object of the exaltation. No, it's an incorrect reading of the grammar in the Greek, in my opinion, and therefore I'm going to underscore the way most of your translations render that passage. It is a direct attribution of deity to the Son. Now, this phrase, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The phrase forever and ever is almost unique to the whole Bible. Doesn't occur very often in the Old or the New Testament. Forever and ever. It's almost like a redundancy. An unnecessary repetition. Redundancy is something that's repeated again. Not necessarily, not necessarily necessary. Okay? But here, the writer intentionally uses it. Both the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old Testament Psalm here, and the writer of Hebrews uses the redundancy. Now, if we're thinking in Semitic terms, if we're thinking in terms of the Hebrew mind, the Old Testament mind. Why would we possibly have a what appears to be a redundancy, an unnecessary repetition? March? For emphasis. For emphasis. In other words, to underscore, to emphatically underscore that he is forever and ever. He is eternal and eternal. He is eternally eternal. He is doubly eternal. Now, is it possible that because there's an eternal person addressing this eternal person that he doubles the eternal, eternal twice over? Is he once again giving us a clue to his own doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity here, by doubling the term for eternity in the Greek and underscoring it with respect to the one who is addressing the other one as God. God the Father addressing God the Son as God. The eternal God the Father addressing the eternal God the Son. The eternal eternals. See? Once again, quite possibly. I can't be dogmatic about it, but it is an interesting thing to consider. That the duplication here is because of the duplicate deity, the duplicate essential deity of the persons who are addressing one another. They are forever and forever persons. They are eternal and eternal persons. And one eternal person addresses another eternal person so that we have double eternals addressing one another. You catch it. The emphasis is unto underscoring. The, once again, the essential deity of the Father and the Son. Right, now, in verse 9, we have lemo crochet again, 
Uh, can you pick it up? What is the kind of hook word there or the link, the crocheted word in that verse? Pardon? Righteous and righteous. Righteousness does appear. That's true. One other one? Yes. Thy what? Thy who? Thy, thy God? Yes, notice God is linked in 8 and 9. So... <clears throat> With verse 8, we have a continuing underscoring of the deity of the Son. Remember, verse 9 is continuing what verse 8 has said. Of the Son, he says, Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee. Address of the deity to the Son once again. Now, what about the companions? The companions of the Son. Who are the companions of the Son of God? There is no answer given here in the, in the passage or in the quotation. And so we turn over to chapter 2 of Hebrews. And we notice verse 10 and 11. And the author answers the question of who the companions of the Son are. They are the sons of glory. They are, verse 11, us, us, believers. We are called what? Christians. Brethren. Brethren, all right? Now, it's generic, okay? It's brethren, which includes cistern, and it's sons, which includes daughters, In other words, it's not exclusive to male-only figures. The companions of the Lord are the sons and daughters of glory. They are the brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the companions whom he is bringing along with him and giving the oil of gladness to. Now, in that ninth verse, he is described as one who loves righteousness. The Son of God not only loves righteousness, he incarnates righteousness. He lives its virtue. He lives the righteousness of God. He lives the righteousness of righteousness. He lives it out in this incarnation and this historical arena. Why? Does he live out righteousness? Why does he incarnate righteousness? Why is righteousness his delight? Because he's a good person. And we like good people. We're, we're attracted to good persons. So we're attracted to Jesus because he's a good person. Is that the reason that he loves righteousness? 
Well, he loves it because God his Father loves it. That's one thing for sure. But he loves righteousness to incarnate righteousness, to live righteousness. Remember, he lives perfectly righteous. Never unrighteousness in his life. Never, ever. Not in thought, word, and deed. He lives righteousness. And he does it not only to glorify his Father, but he does it to cover our unrighteousness. Have you ever lived righteously for one second? Perfectly, righteously for one second? No, you see, and to answer that question honestly, you realize what Luther faced. He realized the agony and the inadequacy of his life in relationship to that question. I am not righteous. I am not perfectly righteous in any one instant of my life. Never, because there's always something wrong. Maybe it's in my thinking. Maybe it's in my attitude. Maybe it's in my emotions. Maybe it's in my behavior. But I'm never perfectly righteous as God himself is perfectly righteous. Remember, the standard of righteousness is God's perfection. No unrighteousness in God himself. Can you say that about yourself? No, you can't say it about yourself. You know it. Therefore, you bear with you in every moment of your life unrighteousness. So what does Jesus come to do in living righteousness? He comes to do something for you. It's not just to magnify his father in heaven. It's not just to glorify him. But it's to do something that you could never do for yourself. You have got unrighteousness written all over you. And if you stand in front of the judgment seat of God, if you stand in front of God's throne today, if you had to call up to heaven tonight and you had to stand there, you got unrighteousness written all over you. Because it's true. There is no righteousness in you. There's no unrighteous, no, not one. Not even any of you. Not one of you is righteous. No, not one of you. And so that label is plastered all over you. And there you are, standing before the face of God, and you got unrighteous. You got the only sign in the political campaign: unrighteous, 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 unrighteous. Me, me, me. That's the only sign you can display. And Jesus comes from out of his seat, and he steps down, and he puts righteousness over unrighteousness. He covers unrighteousness on you and on your sign with his righteousness. And so he cancels your unrighteousness with his righteousness. You understand why the fact that he lived righteously, perfectly righteously, is essential to your justification, to your standing right with God to your standing in front of that throne with your unrighteousness covered, blotted out. But it's not blotted out by the cross. It is not blotted out by the cross. It is blotted out by his life. So you say, I want to hold on to the cross of Jesus. Praise God, yes, you want to hold on to the cross. But you better hold on to his life too, because if you just hold on to that, you're not going to be righteous and you're not going to go into heaven in an unrighteous state. You're not going to stand in that day without the life of Christ 
as well as the death of Christ. You need both. Be of sin the double cure, rock of ages, cleft for me. Double cure. What's top lady saying? He is saying, you got two diseases, and one of them is unrighteousness, and you better have a cure for your unrighteousness, and the only medicine for your unrighteousness is the righteous life of Jesus of Nazareth. So you better believe on his life. Because in believing on his life, you are believing in the righteous character of that life to cover over the unrighteous character of your life. And yes, he hates anomia. That's a Greek word, anomia. David, what does it mean? It means lawlessness, the alpha primitive there, the A prefix, without, not, nomia, nomos, the law, without the law, lawless. He hates lawlessness. And he hates it by embodying its very curse. He hates it by taking its very blight upon himself. He hates lawlessness not only by avoiding it, but he hates it to the point of bearing the curse of it. And so he hangs upon that tree in order to reverse the curse of Anomia, which hangs over us. We are the lawless and the guilty. We are the one that has brought the curse of condemnation upon ourselves by our lawlessness, our breaking of the law of God. And there is no atonement for that unless someone takes that curse upon himself and cancels it. And so you hold on to this cross because this cross is the cancellation of your debt, your guilt, what you must pay for your lawlessness, the penalty of the curse under which you live and the curse which you have earned by your life. And so you see... This God, your God, is giving you the righteousness of a life that you've never lived so that you can stand righteous before the face of God in heaven. And this God who is your God, who is taking the curse of your lawlessness upon himself and reversing it with forgiveness in his precious blood so that you can be cleansed from that curse. He took it. He was cursed in your place. He became sin who knew no sin for you. So that you believe on his righteous life for your righteousness. You believe on his bloody cross for your forgiveness and lifting up of the curse that hangs over you. And so you're two-thirds of the way there. 
You're two-thirds of the way to justification. You see, justification is not just the righteous life of Christ, though it is that. It's not just the bloody death of the forgiving grace of Christ, though it is that. They are constituent elements. They are parts of the whole package. The real Christmas present has three small beauties wrapped up inside it. And the first beauty in that bigger package is righteousness tied up with the robe of Christ's ribbon. And the smaller package beside it is the blood-red package stained with the blood of the cross because it cleanses you from the curse of your lawlessness. And yet there is one final treasure in that large package of justification. And that treasure is Romans 4.25. He was raised for your justification. Because in his resurrection, you see, he's justified. In his resurrection, he's vindicated. In his resurrection, he is declared right with God. He is declared not guilty. He is declared righteous by resurrection. And so in your justification by faith in Christ alone, you take his life for your righteousness. You take his death for your forgiveness. You take his resurrection for your victory. And now you have the whole package. Be of sin the triple cure. Be of sin the triple cure. A more holistic biblical doctrine of justification does not stop at the forgiveness of sin. Oh, modern evangelicalism gets the cross of Jesus as the forgiveness of sin, and that's our justification. They equate the blood of the cross with forgiveness of sins equals justification. No. It's only a third of the story. You want the whole story, don't you? You want the rest of the story, don't you? You want the whole enchilada, don't you? You don't want just the jalapeno on the side. You want the whole thing, don't you? And so you want the whole life of Christ for your justification because there's your righteousness. And you want the whole death of Christ for your justification for there's your forgiveness. And you want the whole resurrection of Christ for your justification because there's your victory. You want the whole Christmas package because you want every one of the three little presents inside the big box for your justification. Justification by the life of Christ, by the death of Christ, and by the resurrection of Christ. That's the legacy of Paul and the New Testament doctrine of justification. The full-orbed legacy of the New Testament doctrine of justification. Any questions or comments about that? Scott? Is it possible that something you're saying about the resurrection is implied here in verse 8, since your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, might be even have a reference to the resurrection throne of the Son as being a righteous kingdom as a result of his uh, having loved righteousness and hating wickedness in his life and therefore being exalted above his companions? Not impossible. Not impossible. I, I, I won't say no. 
I won't say dogmatically yes either, but I won't say no. Question. Yes, Art. Uh, you mentioned how wonderful justification is. It's three things, not just one. What about uh, what about a naysayer who would uh, say, "Well, look how wonderful it is because we not only have justification, but we have victory too." So, no, that sounds pretty wonderful too. Yeah, the victory comes in the justification in terms of the resurrection component of justification. I'm not suggesting that justification has to be added up with these three components. I'm simply saying that there is an aspect of justification that comes to you as a result of the full-orbed work of Christ. You want the whole work of Christ for your justification because you want the whole Christ for your justification. He lived for you to be justified. He died for you to be justified. He rose again for you to be justified. That is the whole story of justification in the New Testament scriptures. So in your faith, in your prayers, you thank God for the justifying righteous life of Christ. You thank God for the bloody atoning death of Christ. You thank God for the victorious resurrection of Christ because you're thanking God for your justification in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. You enrich your prayers, you see. You enrich your adoration. You enrich your understanding of what it means for you to stand right with God. Sacrifice has been made perfect forever, or he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That one sacrifice then includes all these aspects, is what you're saying. The sacrifice in relationship to sanctification is a different emphasis than the sacrifice with respect to justification. One sacrifice you he has made perfect forever. I'm assuming that's justification there. No, he's making perfect in holiness. That could be called what John Murray might call his definitive doctrine of sanctification. But it's like he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Yes. So that being We're, made perfect forever has already happened, and those who are being sacrificed now is a continual thing. Yes, but uh, when you understand what he's saying there in relationship to the progress of sanctification, he's saying, even as Christ himself has been perfectly sanctified, so you have been perfectly sanctified in him. Now, it doesn't stop the ongoing process of sanctification, and this is a somewhat debated topic. But nonetheless, there is a profundity here that needs to be weighed. And that's the reason I mentioned John Murray's doctrine of definitive sanctification, which I'm not completely sold on, but nonetheless I think it is worth considering, and that verse that you point out is one one verse that suggests it. However, I want to keep justification and sanctification distinct categories. He's not talking about justification in that passage. He's talking about sanctification. That's my point. I want to keep those categories distinct. Justification is a forensic category. Sanctification is a renovative category. Okay? Forensic, you stand declared right. Renovative, you are being changed and transformed. Those are two different processes in the plan of salvation. All right, very quickly to verses 10 to 12. Can you identify the marismas in this passage? Now, of course, that suggests that you remember what marismas was. I'm looking at Kay. Because Kay remembers so much from last year. <laughs> teasing you a little, teasing you a little bit, Kay. Maybe it would ring a bell with you. Anybody know what marismus is? Anybody remember? 
All right, now I have to remember when you come to these sessions, you're learning, so you need to get, you know, you get keep these things in your head if you can. All right. All right, the marismus is a, a figure of speech whereby you are describing the whole. All right? So what describes the whole in verse 10? The heavens and the earth. That's a marismus. Night and day, that's a marismus. Morning and evening, that's a marismus. You see, you're talking about something that is a description of the whole, but you're using the distinctive parts of it. Heaven and earth, the whole cosmos. All right, with that marismus, then I leave you to your break, and we'll come back to pick up there at verse 10. Incidentally, before you go to the break, uh, an appeal from the janitorial staff of the church that... uh, uh, you not leave anything in the kitchen that's not been cleaned up, uh, dirty coffee or cocoa mugs in the uh, sink or unwashed Tupperware container, baked uh, open bags of pretzels, etc. Clean up the kitchen uh, and make sure everything is in a wastebasket or has been washed out and put back. Uh, I'm only appealing to you on behalf of the uh, janitors because uh, they're starting to find uh, the little critters visiting uh, the church, uh, and uh, the little critters are coming in out of the cold, and we don't want to feed them for the winter, or they might bed down. Okay. Thank you for keeping that in mind. Thank you. All right, back to verse 10 through 12. As we see the kind of holistic marismas with earth and heavens in verse 10, notice the relationship between 10a and 12D. What do you see there? Ten A and twelve D. In the beginning and shall not have an end. Good. That's exactly what I wanted you to notice. You notice the holistic beginning and end. In fact, it forms a bracket around those three verses. So we're having now entering into a discussion of creation and consummation. The beginning and the end. Protology and eschatology. First things and last things. Or in German, Christina, would you sound it out for us? Thank you very much. And would you explain it for us, Christina? Like you said, in the earlier ancient or even prehistoric, then it was the end times. So Geschichte means what in German? History. History. Okay. So or means beginning or early history. 
And end means last or end history. It's a, a German loves compound words. They just stick things right on top of one another. Kind of like Hebrew that way. It keeps sticking things on the on the front and on the back and you're just stretching it out across the whole page. <laughs> You'd probably be good with Hebrew, Christina. <laughs> you're already used to it. You're looking at the beginning and end of a word. <laughs> All right. Now, the term Urgeschichte and Engeschichte is a ter- terminus technicus. In other words, it's a vocabulary phrase that jumps into the discussion when you're talking about creation and consummation or beginning things and ending things. And so it pops up in the, in the technical literature, even in the popular literature sometimes. Popular literature will be defined as Christina just defined it so well for us. But these verses are ranging across the history of redemption. They are framing or encapsulating the history of redemption from beginning to end, from first to last. Who then is the Lord? In verse, in verse, uh, I lost there in verse 10. Who is the Lord? What's the antecedent of the Lord? Thou, the Son, in verse 8. So we're going back up to verse 8 because we're still talking about the same person who is designated in verse 8 as God in verse 8 and 9 and now as Lord, the honorific term of exalted Lord, which belongs to Christ as Son and as God. Once again, underscoring the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ Son of God. But we have a contrast here. In between the framework, in the beginning and the end, that which does not perish. The contrast between the eternality of the Son who is Lord and God, and the temporality of creation which begins and ends. For eternality of the deity, of the Son who is God and Lord, eternality has no beginning and no end. Therefore, embedded within this section of these quotations is a theological uh, uh, implication of the distinction between the Lord, God, the Son, and the created order again. Now, not so much the angels, per se, as that which is in heaven and earth. And verses 11 and 12 are going to expand upon this. So we're going to look at those in more detail with, once again, a note on the crocheted words, the hooked words. What word, what uh, terms do you see that are linked together or hooked together, knitted together like a crochet, piece of crochet? What do you, what terms do you see there? Anyone? Garments. That is the hook term. Now, keeping your finger there in Hebrews 1, We want to look once again at this contrast. Only here it is the contrast between what abides and what perishes. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 51 
and verse 6. And when someone has it, if you would read it for us, just go ahead with your version when you uh, unpack it. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. The sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane. Okay, now, in that verse, if you have, if you're still looking at it, where is the marismas? The sky and the earth. Now, the word for sky in the New American Standard is in the Hebrew shamayim. What does shamayim mean, Mr. Sanborn? Heavens. Heavens. So it's actually in the Hebrew, the heavens. So it's heavens and earth. Exactly the same thing that we have uh, there in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 10. All right, so we have a reinforcement of the quotation in Hebrews 1, 10. But now, here in Isaiah 51, the heavens vanish. They dissipate like smoke, drift away into nothingness. The earth wastes away. It decays or wears out like a garment. It crumbles once again into nothingness. What then abides? When the marismas fades away, dissipates, decays, what abides? What remains? It is that which is antecedent to what decays and passes away. It, that, it is that which precedes the material creation. That abides. Obviously, God himself abides. He remains. The creation, the material creation, is not to be identified with God. We are not pantheists. There is a distinction between who he is and what he is and what he makes. And there is a distinction between the endurance of who he is and what he is and what he makes. What he makes does not endure forever unless he grants it immortality. So, when the sky and the earth, the heavens and the earth pass away... Then what abides is God and his arena. For it was God and his arena which preceded the creation of what passed away in the first place. He is before the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Keep in mind that what is there in God's own purview, what is there in God's own arena precedes the creation of the sky, the heavens, and the earth. All right, now to come back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. The material creation, notice the language here, passes away, perishes, does not abide, because it does not remain the same. Right, now the writer of Hebrews gives us an exegesis of what he's talking about here. Turn over to chapter 12. Exegesis means he's going to explain or expand upon what he's talking about here from the Psalter. He's going to expand upon it in verses 26 and 27 of the 12th chapter. 
And uh, Loretta, do you have it? Which verse? 26 and 27 of chapter 12. Okay. Thank you. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that that what cannot be shaken may remain. Notice the contrast there. What is going to be shaken, what is going to be removed are created things. And they are going to be removed so that what cannot be shaken will remain. That which abides will remain. Well, what abides? That which takes precedence, that which is prior to the created arena. That is what will remain. All right, so notice coming back to chapter 1 is contrastive balance between that which will perish and that which will not perish. In other words, it's imperishable. That which will become old and that which will not become old because it remains the same. It is eternal. The contrastive balance between that which may be changed as related, as contrasted with that which may not be changed. In other words, that which may not be changed is immutable. Using the beginning and ending of our author's discussion of the relationship of the created order to the eschatological order, the created order to the ontological order, this relationship which he describes using the Psalter in chapter 1 and which he uses describing the book of Haggai, using the book of Haggai in chapter 12. That relationship is the contrast between the created, which is shaken and disappears, perishes, becomes old, is changed. It is changed into nothingness. It is dissolved in a fervent heat, as Peter says in his epistle, so that what abides, what cannot be shaken, the things that are not created, may remain. They are that which remains is that which is eschatological, permanently, abidingly, eternally eschatological. Now, the contrast once again falls down upon the glory of the Son, who is a part of this imperishable, eternal, immutable arena, because he is himself eternal, immutable imperishable. He is a part of that dimension. He comes out of that dimension. He goes back into that dimension. He takes into union with his eternal nature, a divine nature, but he glorifies that human nature so that it becomes subject to his divine nature in that dimension. That's what a spiritual body is. A spiritual body is not a ghostly Casper the Friendly Ghost body. A spiritual body is a body which is perfectly subject to the Holy Spirit in the eschatological arena, the arena of the perfect and pure spirit. That's what a spiritual body is. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. He's not talking about a wispy, invisible spiritual body. He's talking about your flesh being raised up completely perfect and subject to the Holy Ghost. And that can only take place here. But your whole person, body, soul, your whole person, will be completely, perfectly subjected to the Spirit, a spiritual body. Any questions or comments? The nature of your resurrection body? Precisely like the nature of Christ's resurrection body. 
It enters into glory as a perfectly spiritual resurrection body because even his body in his glorified state is perfectly subject to the Holy Spirit, to the domain of the Spirit. So that Paul can make that astounding statement in 2 Corinthians 3, the Lord is the Spirit. Oh, there goes our doctrine of the Trinity. No, 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 no. He is talking about the majesty of this glorification of the Son of God in terms of his uh, uh, human nature in union with his divine nature. All right, now we reach in verse 13, the zenith of the katana, because we have the repetition of the rhetorical question. We pointed out this structural frame when we began work on verses 5 to 14. You will notice once again that verse 13a is a duplication of verse 5a, almost the very same order of words. The five Greek words that are part of that quotation in verse 5 are part of the quotation once again in verse 13a. But having bracketed this string of pearls through verses 5 to 13, he adds the climax. He adds the quote from Psalm 110. Why? Because this psalm climaxes, brings us to the zenith of the argument. This psalm indicates the surpassing enthronement glory of the Son of God and his triumph over all his enemies who become his footstool. Not just his dignity as the son of the father, not just his precedence as the first begotten, not just his superiority to the angels, but the fact that he is the reigning king of heaven and his enemies are crushed under his feet. He is the trampling warrior of glory. And he shall subdue all his enemies and crush them under his feet as he will crush the head of that serpent. So, why Psalm 110? Not only because out of the session, the sitting at the right hand, which reprises the comment in verse 3, not only the session at the right hand of glory, but the triumphant and victorious session over the enemies of that arena, the enemies of God and his kingdom. From the most quoted passage in the whole New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Twenty-two times it is cited in the New Testament scriptures. Five of those twenty-one times are in this epistle to the Hebrews. It is a crucial psalm for the exultant glorification of the royal Son of God who is God, who is Lord, and 
When he sits to crush his enemies under his feet, his enemies will grovel at his feet and acknowledging him, Lord and God, before they are sent packing to everlasting damnation. They will confess it. They will hate it as they confess it. But they will declare that he is whom he is. The devils have already done that. The demons have already said to Jesus, have you come to torment us before our time? They know who he is. The devil is a better theologian. He's a better Trinitarian theologian than you or I will ever be. But he hates the doctrine that he knows. He despises the identity of the person of the Son of God, which he fully recognizes and acknowledges. And he works insidiously to countermand and to undermine and to subvert that kingdom that belongs to that Son and to delay as long as possible his own everlasting torment and impotence. His doom is sure. He knows it. And so he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking to trouble all Christians and the church and the kingdoms of this world. But he will be made the footstool of the Son of God at last. Well, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? Another rhetorical question. Yes, the angels are ministering spirits. And the reflection here is the parallel between ministering spirits in verse 14 and angels as winds and flames in verse 7. But notice that word inherit in verse 14. Inherit those who are inheritors are drawn into the characterization of the Son in verse 2 as heir of all things. He, as the heir, has come on this sojourn, this pilgrimage, and has drawn those who are to inherit from his journey, have drawn them into his narrative. To use Paul's language, this heir has made these inheritors joint heirs with the pilgrim who is the Son of God. So it is a pilgrimage motif. It is a sojourn motif, but it is a sojourn and pilgrimage motif in which those who are drawn into the narrative through the work of the pilgrim Son of God become inheritor pilgrims, joint heir pilgrims along with him. His journey to his inheritance has taken you along on your pilgrim journey to your inheritance. And what is that inheritance? It is the last word in the Greek text of this verse. It is salvation. That 
was the purpose of the journey. That is the inheritance laid up for you in the air. He joins you to his own life and character, not in destroying the distinction between you and him, but allowing you to participate in all the benefits and privileges that are in him. He is an heir of glory. He makes you joint heirs along with him. He has received an inheritance because he has completed this narrative journey. He gives you that inheritance as a gift. Now there is laid up for you an eternal weight of glory as it has been laid up for him. Do you see the identification paradigm here in this narrative drama? He comes to sojourn and be pilgrim on your behalf so that your pilgrim sojourn will be joined to his own. He wants you to be together with him in all the blessed facets of the richness of his work. And here, his work of being the sojourning heir of the kingdom of heaven, the sojourning inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, so that you can be heirs inheritors and joint heirs of the kingdom of heaven together with him. Now, the stinger at the end of this chapter, the last word at the end of this chapter, in the Greek as well as in some of your English translations, the last word is salvation. And that word is foreshadowing the next section of this epistle. Because that very same word, salvation, appears in verse 3 of chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Another rhetorical question. The rhetorical question in chapter 14 ends with salvation. The next rhetorical question in the epistle in chapter 2, verse 3, centers on salvation. What's our author doing with his stinger? at the end of chapter 1, and picking it up midway into the opening of chapter 3. He's foreshadowing, he's foreshadowing what is the heart of this narrative drama. It is your salvation. How shall you escape if you neglect it? This heir who has brought it to you and given it to you as a legacy, if you neglect it, how shall you inherit it? All right, so we're on, we're poised to take a look now at chapter 2 in the time that's uh, remaining this evening. If you have any questions about chapter 1 or any questions about any of the things we uh, covered there uh, since the break. All right, now beginning then with chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I have printed, for the benefit of those that can uh, read the Greek, the Greek text, but for the benefit of those of you who can't read the Greek text even, you can see the uh, uh, grade or highlighted uh, pies or P in the Greek text. They're underlined as well as highlighted. 
And you see once again in verse 1 and 2 and again in verse 18 at the end of this chapter, you see the threefold highlighting of that same initial Greek letter. Now we talked about this at the beginning of chapter 1 where he also used that initial P in the first verse of chapter 1. And what did we call that way back there in chapter 1? Mike? Alliteration. Alliteration. So once again, he's up to his old tricks. He's a narrative or literary genius, and so he uses alliteration to draw his audience into the drama of the text. So the 3P style here in verse 1 of chapter 2, verse 2 of chapter 2, verse 18 of chapter 2, is not just simply accidental. There's a way of him using his vocabulary which creates a resonance in his reading or hearing audience. It's a kind of clue to a pattern that he is attempting to uh, describe to a structure that he is laying down. Now, he uses a word in verse 3 that he will duplicate in chapter 12. That word is the word escape. How shall we escape? Notice, in this context, in verse 3, how shall we escape in relationship to what has been spoken? We're talking once again about revelation. This takes us back to chapter 1. The revelation that has come in these eschatological days, these last days through the sun. So, how shall we escape if we neglect the spoken revelation? Now turn over to chapter 12 for a minute. And look at verse 25. Sarai, if you have it, would you read it for us? Just verse 25, thank you. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? How shall we escape? Okay. Notice him who is speaking. Again, speaking is the revelatory vector. Once again, talking about revelation. And uh, we will not escape if we neglect it or refuse it. Now, there is a suggestion that the occurrence of this pattern, namely escape, from ignore and by ignoring the revelation, that which has been spoken by revelation, there is a suggestion that this forms a kind of macro structure to the whole letter. In other words, chapter 2, 1 to 4, and chapter 12, 25 to 29 are kind of a balancing block at the beginning and the end of the epistle. One chapter in and one chapter from the end. One chapter in from the beginning, one chapter from the end. And we have these duplicate words. The word escape is exactly the same in the Greek. And the, word, the verb for speak is exactly the same root in the Greek. Is it possible that the author has set up this balance block between 2, 1 to 4 and 12, 25 to 29? I only throw it out as a uh, suggestion, a possibility. It is an interesting duplication. Uh, is it fraught with more theological significance than that? I'm not prepared to say that at this point. I only observe it. But I draw it to your attention because I think it may be significant. 
Now back to chapter 2, where we look at the word patterns in verses 1 and 3, and verses 2 and 3, we're looking for parallels here. Now this word of, this work of kind of hunting up these parallels or looking for these markers is not just uh, idle uh, banter. And I mean, it's not just me wasting time uh, with mental gymnastics. Uh, the use of these patterns is in the text. When we find these parallels, we're looking at parallels in the virginal Greek language, in the Greek text of the book. And therefore, we have to come to grips with why they are there. So finding them is the first step to asking the question why they are there. So in verses 1 to 3, what do we see that is parallel? Ben? Heard. heard. The word heard. That is exactly right. Now, verses 2 and 3, what is parallel? Spoken. Spoken is there. Anything else, Ben? It's a little harder to see in your English translation because it's not translated the same in all versions. But there is a word there that is actually the same in the Greek text. Do any of you have an English translation in which there is a word in verse 2 after spoken, which is the same as a word after spoken in verse 3? Pardon? Spell it for me, man. No, it's not through. I thought you might have said the word proved. Art? I'll take a guess. Well, let's see. Uh, spoken and announced and more than that. Spoken by angels and announced by the Lord. No, it's not that either. All right. The, the difficulty is that the English translations have not used the same word when they've translated this Greek word. Notice in verse 2. What is spoken has been proved unalterable. Some of your margins, that's what the New American Standard says, unalterable. Some of your margins may say steadfast. But notice in verse 3, what is spoken is confirmed. The word for confirmed in Greek is the same word for unalterable or steadfast in verse 2. So the Greek structure is parallel. Notice the significance of the parallelism. What had been spoken to angels was confirmed. I can use confirmed for unalterable or steadfast, even in verse 2, and it makes perfect sense. What has been spoken through the Lord has been confirmed, verse 3. The parallels are precise. Now, granted, there's a little bit of awkwardness to confirmed in verse 2 if we translate it that way, but it is not insurmountable awkwardness, and therefore I could make a case for translating in parallel. All right, we want to come back to this attestation or this confirming aspect of Revelation, but we want to go on to look at verse 1 first. Coming to 2-1, we've shifted. We've shifted not only from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, but we've shifted from the opening words, which you can see in the top line of the Greek text of verse 1, dia tuto. Dia tuto. Pete, can you translate? Therefore, on, on account of this. On account of this. All right. Again, I like the New American Standard. It says, for this reason. All right. Now, that opening 
is a conclusion. It is concluding the argument of chapter 1. For this reason, in other words, everything from 1-1 down to 1-14 precedes. And so he's saying, for this reason, therefore, as as a result, on account of this, my conclusion is... Very important to see the link between 2, 1 to 4 and 1, 1 to 14. Very important. Because you see, his argument is unfolding. But here, he's not adding anything to his argument per se. He is shifting from expounding not only the nature and person of the Son and the finality of Revelation. He is shifting from expounding that to doing what? In two, one. Spoken like a broad evangelical. <laughs> yes, we must always shift application, right? <laughs> All right. No, it's not really application per se. Art? It is exhortation. That is correct. He is exhorting his audience to now understand the consequences of his previous argument. And in doing so, notice what he's going to do. He's going to return to the contrast between the former era and the last era, or the now era. All right, now I'm not sneering at that word application. Well, not really. But most of you who know my uh, history of discussion of this term understand that when I hear application, I hear Immanuel Kant. Now, that may surprise you because Immanuel Kant is a bad guy. Immanuel Kant is the father of the German Enlightenment. He's the father of German liberalism. And I'm saying that application comes out of German liberalism and Kantianism. Yes, it does. Because remember, what Kant says about religion is not the idea of belief in God, but the application of the idea to how you live. Application has to do with behavior, with what you do. That's what Kant says is the purpose of religion. The purpose of religion is to get you to apply good behavior to your life. And what does the evangelical church do? The evangelical church comes along and hooks its star to Kantian applicationism, to Kantian moralism, to Kantian... uh, Well, the purpose of religion is to show you how to be a better person, a better husband, better wife, better student, happier with your own self-esteem. Application is all about your moral improvement. And so when application comes into the 20th century through 19th century German liberalism, it's all about uh, Leben, not Lehre. It's all about life, not doctrine. Who cares whether Jesus is is God or not? That's not the important thing about it. Jesus teaches us how to live. It's the application of the principles of Jesus to our life. It's the moral life of Jesus that is the application that we want. Now, it may be the case that a person using the term application does not mean Kantian moralism or 19th century liberalism or 20th century reductionism. It is true. I didn't mean that. Yes, you're forgiven. 
But having used that bastard term, do you see what, what boat you've jumped into? All right, so you see why my hackles go up. It is not because there's something evil in the word itself, but it's what it carries with it. It is the freight behind the term. Understand that when you use that term, you have immediately jumped into the Enlightenment camp, whether you know it or not. Whether you know it or not, that's exactly what you have done. And so, instead of the word application... We can start with art's word exhortation because this is hortatory subjunctive type of language here in the Greek text anyway. So that is exhortive language. But let's take a better, more excellent way to describing this relationship between explaining the text of Scripture and participating in the drama of the text which was explained. Let's take a more excellent way. What is the heart of Paul's doctrine of Christ? The heart of Paul's doctrine of Christ is that you, as he, would be en Christo. That's his favorite phrase, en Christo, meaning in Christ. He uses it almost a dozen times. That you would be in Christ. What does it mean for you to be in Christ? It means for you to be identified with Christ Jesus. It means for you to be united to his life, death, and resurrection. It means for you to participate in his benefits. Now, isn't that a richer word than application? Doesn't that carry a lot more drama and poignancy to your soul than application, particularly when applicationism is moralism. It's trying to get you to behave in a particular way. That's the reason topical sermons are so popular. They want to get you to behave in a moral way. So moving away from that term, application is moving into a richer identification. The application is your life in Christ in the text, your participation in the life of Christ in the text, your identification, your union with the life of Christ in the text. That will send you home singing. That will send you home praising God that you were with Jesus today when you walked out of his church. Because you were reminded, you were sweetened, you were enriched in your identity with Christ. And now, do you ask yourself, when you've been reminded of your identity with Christ, how shall I then live? Do you ask yourself that? How shall I then live? You know the answer to that. The Holy Spirit has given you the answer to that. You shall live, walk, and behave godly in Christ Jesus. So, my hackles go up when I hear the term because of the freight that's behind it, and I would like to divert the discussion away from the term to something that is in the text, because you won't find the word application in the Bible. It's not there. 
If you've got an English Bible that translates a Hebrew or Greek word by application, it's because they have used a secondary meaning, a contemporary meaning, to communicate dynamic equivalence to you. But it is not in the book. What is in the book? Union with Christ. Participating in the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Being joined to the life of heaven. That's the language that is in the New Testament. So let's be real biblical fundamentalists. We're not going to use a word that's not in the Bible. We're not going to talk about application. We're going to talk about participating and being united to Christ. That's what we're going to talk about. Praise God, we're biblical fundies. All right. I won't take any questions or comments about that. (laughs) Because I am dogmatic about it. (laughs) Unless you didn't perceive that. (laughs) But please understand. There is a whole philosophical history. There is a whole philosophical 200 years of tradition behind this word application. It's there. You may not be aware of it, but it is there. It is there from Immanuel Kant to George Friedrich Hegel to Soren Kierkegaard to Rudolf Bultmann to Sartre, Camus, Ennui to Ludwig Wittgenstein. It's there. It's there in every modern post-enlightenment philosopher and theologian. Those people are heretics. They're unorthodox. Why do I want to use a term of vocabulary that they have perfected to express what religion is all about. Religion is all about application of ethics, moral behavior to your life. I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. All right. Now, we've gone to exhortation now, and it's underscored by that word must. The absolute necessity of his exalt, his exhortation to his audience. Pay Close attention to what I am saying. Why? Because the Son is superior to the angels. Verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1. Why? Because the revelation that has been given to the Son is the last self-disclosure of God to his people in history of redemption. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, are parallel in many ways to chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This exhortation is parallel to the exordium in chapter 1. And the danger is drifting away. This is a very graphic Greek word. The Greek word here for drift away is the picture of a boat drifting from its moorings. Just. Slowly, gradually, drifting out to sea, drifting out into the lake, abandoning its tie-down. So, what was this drift? He's exhorting them not to drift what is going on in this community. So we're back to the issue of the crisis in the audience 
of his readers that we addressed at the opening of this series, one thing we do know from chapter 10, verse 25, that they are drifting away from worship. They are forsaking the assembling of themselves together. They are starting to drift away from regular worship with the body of believers. Every one of us pastors watches that with sadness as we observe people drifting away from worship. And when we go to talk to them about what is happening and find a receptive heart, then we praise God that they can be brought back to the moorings and to their regular worship style. But when we find defiance, when we find no response, our hearts grieve and break we cannot understand why a person would ebb away from the household of faith and from the word of life. Why will you die? Why will you cut yourself off from the bread of life? Why will you starve yourself? Why will you thirst yourself to death? by not feeding upon the preaching of the word and the fellowship of the saints. Why are you drifting? We don't know what the pressures were exactly in this community, but we know there are the beginning signs of some drifting away, and he exhorts them not to do it, to pay close attention to the danger of Drifting, not only in absenting themselves from worship, but also in chapter 5, verses 13 through chapter 6, verse 1, content with baby food, content to be pablum Christians, cruising on Gerber's. And not wanting the mature food, the solid food of the word of God. 6.1, the elementary teachings are all they want. They only want the basics. They don't want anything that challenges their brain. I didn't come to church on Sunday morning to think. I came to church on Sunday morning to park my brain and to feel good. Bring it on, rock band. Yeah, all right. To what happening now, church? One banner of one local church. We even got the naked gospel. Oh, boy, that'll bring him in, won't it? If it weren't so blasphemous and ridiculous, you know, attaching salacious language to the gospel... You wonder what these people are thinking. Well, you know what they're thinking. They've been down to a marketing campaign. 
They've got somebody who has told them that what you have to do is have this groovy, groovy advertising campaign to identify with your contemporary audience who are watching naked bodies on their, their television screens and computers all the time. So you might as well talk about a naked, naked gospel, right? Why not? Get in with the culture. No, it is the deep things of Christ that will preserve your integrity and the integrity of the church against such capitulation and accommodation to the culture. Because that church doesn't have long to live. It doesn't have long to live. When the culture shifts next, it'll shift with it. There is no abiding thing in that church. It's always a church trying to adjust itself to what the culture is entertained with. And so those churches I label ecclesiastical nightclubs. They are simply advertising drinks and happy hour under the rubric of the gospel. Sorry, no sale. It won't last. Well, there's something else that's going on in this church, which may be a reason for him suggesting that they beware not to drift, and it's in chapter 10. We've already referred to this in our earlier studies. Verses 31 to 34 are suggesting that this congregation, this community, may be discouraged by the persecution that has come upon it. And they're now getting a little weary. Because they're tired and they're a little bit fatigued, they're starting to be in danger of drifting off. They don't want to put up the good fight anymore. It's too difficult. Surely, like myself, you have felt that way as you watch the CBS Evening News. Or you tune in to the nightly news on any of the major channels and you see how the church is regarded. Or you pick up a copy of the Seattle Times, that evangelical news daily, (coughs) and you look how the church is treated with the New York Times, with the Washington Post, or the Los Angeles Times, or any of the major newspapers in this country, let alone the New Yorker, the Atlantic Monthly, all of the buzz media publications. And you begin to wonder, is it worth it? With the inundation of negative attacks on the church, the holding up to Christians to ridicule, and abuse verbally in the media, singling them out as buffoons and Neanderthals, you wonder, how do you withstand this barrage? Well, turn off the news. (laughs) Do what I did. In 1965, when Walter Cronkite started becoming the greatest ally of the Viet Cong on CBS Evening News and promoting the VC 
against our dying boys in the killing fields? Did Walter Cronkite take responsibility for the three million South Vietnamese who were murdered by the Viet Cong in 1975 and following? Did he stand up and say, I was in part responsible for that because of the climate I created in this country for the anti-Vietnam War movement and betrayed the boys and women that we sent over there to fight that battle in order to stop communism from killing three million people in South Vietnam? Or how many Vietnamese refugees do you know in Seattle who took to the boats simply to escape and their their brothers and sisters, their mothers and fathers drowned in the South China Sea and they escaped simply by the grace of God. You don't know any of them? I do. I do. I heard the stories of the tiger cages. I heard the stories of living in the jungles. I heard the stories of running from the VC who were out to cut off your head if they could get you. I heard stories of what the love for freedom, the desire for freedom meant. And did Walter Cronkite apologize for enabling all of those people to barely survive by jumping on boats, just raft boats, and sending themselves out into the mercy of the South China Sea, hoping somebody would pick them up? What do we say about the communist gulags in China and the Soviet Union? What do we say about this ruthless, totalitarian subjugation of human beings crushing their lives out in the name of power? What do we say about it? You see, this whole issue of the cultural slant makes you wonder is it worth it? Have you seen the accounts on the internet this week of the oppressed Christians in Iraq and in Iran and in the United Arab Emirates crying out crying out to the West help us help us being crushed by Islam Well, this congregation may have been looking at the Roman Empire as the very same autocratic, totalitarian crusher of freedom and dignity. And began to ask in chapter 10 whether it was worth it. And so drifting away because it was costing too much. Now, none of us really knows what we will do in the face of intense persecution. I don't even know, which is the reason that I pray that my faith will not fail. But I know there are thousands upon millions of Christians who have faced that with their very life and have given their life rather than give up and deny their Savior. They are a great encouragement to my faith as I think about the William Tyndalls and the Nicholas Ridleys and Polycarps of the ancient church who were incinerated before totalitarian tyrants. 
because they wouldn't deny Christ. This church had not come to that point. They had not come to the shedding of blood, but they were beginning to be in danger of drifting, and so he exhorts them to pay close attention. You are living in a day, we are living in a day, when we must pay close attention to the faith that we love and believe. It is the only thing that's going to stand us instead if, if persecution comes to us. Any questions or comments? Objections? Rebuttals? I am an optimistic amillennialist. Believe it or not, because the gates of hell will not prevail. David. I, um, I understand that uh, you classified Dietrich Bonhoeffer as uh, quite a liberal theologian as well as he may have been. But uh, he voluntarily chose to return to Germany and uh, uh, the church had just collapsed in the face of Nazism. And he was part of the conspiracy to uh, get rid of Hitler. Um, so I like asking my father-in-law, who was quite pacifist in his orientation, whether he thought that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer could be uh, doing the will of God by trying to get rid of Hitler. It's just something I'd like to comment on. Uh, yes, on Bonhoeffer, uh, please don't leave. Uh, <clears throat> Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, made a heroic stand. That I commend. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the John the Baptist to a theological movement. Kristen, what is it? God is dead. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the John the Baptist to the death of God theology that was extremely popular in the 1960s. He wrote in his letters and papers from prison about religionless Christianity. Religionless Christianity. From the beginning of his theological and philosophical career in the 1920s, he rejected all orthodoxy, all orthodoxy. Cornelius Van Til wrote a brilliant article reviewing Bonhoeffer's career in the Westminster Theological Journal back in the 1970s. I will be happy to give you a copy, though it will be difficult for you to follow it if you do not understand historical theology and neo-orthodoxy. But the bottom line is this, <clears throat> though we may commend Dietrich Bonhoeffer for his heroic act against Hitler, we do not want to make the mistake of labeling him an evangelical or orthodox Christian. By his own testimony, he was not. He repudiated orthodox evangelical Christianity. 
So please do not be tempted by the current interest in Bonhoeffer from evangelicals who are simply blind to what I lived through in the 60s when Bonhoeffer was the patron saint of Thomas J.J. Altizer, Gabriel Vahanian, and Paul Van Buren, the Death of God theologians from 1960 to 1970. I heard them lecture. I heard them tout their hero. I know what Bonhoeffer wrote because I spent two years writing papers in seminary and reading what he wrote. And when Van Til's article was published, I said, where was this when I needed it? He completely unmasks him. But he uses his own primary writings to quote him so that when you're done, you understand Bonhoeffer is a heroic pagan. A heroic pagan. All right, now, I want you to understand that because many of you will walk into a evangelical Christian family bookstore and you see cost of discipleship on the shelf and you read through that book and it talks about cheap grace and all that kind of stuff. You think he's talking about orthodoxy. He's not talking about orthodoxy at all. Not at all. He's changed the vocabulary. He's used the words and changed their meaning, which is what neo-orthodoxy and all neo-orthodox theology does which is the reason that you have to be trained to read it and understand it. So come to seminary, sit through Sanborn's classes in systematic theology, sit through the History of Biblical Theology course. We'll train you how to read it a little bit. We won't make you experts, but we'll at least alert you to the fact that you're not going to be snookered by these people that use orthodox vocabulary but are card-carrying liberals and worse. So, yes, Bonhoeffer, a hero in that one regard, but definitely an anti-hero with respect to historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity. He never would have accepted the label. Don't you give it to him. Enough said. Good night.